Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and today I have with me Dr. Chara Reed. Chara is uh, somebody I met on LinkedIn, but I think her story really resonates well with a lot of pharmacists out there. She got her doctorate in pharmacy from Midwestern in 2004, and currently holds a number of positions where she lives outside the Chicago area. Can you uh, elaborate on some of your positions you currently and have held in the past, Chara? Sure. So currently, I'm interim director of pharmacy services at DuPage Medical Group, which is um, a multidisciplinary medical group, pretty large footprint here in the suburbs of Chicago, pretty well-known organization. It's an interesting group to work for simply because we're not tied to a hospital. We're completely outpatient and have uh, quite pharmacists and quite a few different services, which is cool. But my former background, really the where I spent the most time was at Walgreens. I worked there for 20 years. So long time, long time in retail. And retail is something I think most people think of when they think of pharmacist. And again, that's kind of why I brought you on here today. Were there any other roles you had in the past at all, in case I'm forgetting something? So, yeah. So after I left, I didn't leave retail, but after I left working for Big Fox or Chain, I went to an independent pharmacy for a couple of years. I was there for two years. actually loved it and didn't really want to leave. And the only reason, what the only thing that really prompted me to start looking for another job after I had been there for two years is because I was driving 70 miles one way to work. So I had a really long commute. You know, that kind of wears on you after some time. But I really, really actually enjoyed working retail in an independent setting. It was, it was actually, it was great. Yeah, I, uh, I've done that before when I took my first uh, pharmacy manager job. I think I drove 40 to 45 minutes, which... And it was mostly highway, so it was about 40, 45 miles. And I, that was one of the reasons I had to make a, a little bit of a move myself was because that can take a toll on you. That's an hour and a half out of your day both ways easily, and in your case, probably yep. quite a bit more. Yep, and if it snowed, if you live in the Midwest, in, you know, particularly in Chicago, if it snowed, I could have a three-hour commute one way. Yeah, Chicago has more. Tra- Chicago has a lot more traffic than where I live in Cleveland, but we get more lake effect snow. So I guess pick your poison there. I'd, I'd rather take the Cleveland snow than the Chicago traffic. But, uh, but so the reason I invited you on here today was you recently posted on LinkedIn about how in 2013 you left a well-paying chain pharmacy position, as you said, was with yep. Walgreens, which you held for over 20 years. Which, again, pharmacy changes seems like every every day now, but in that period, probably a little bit less so than now but you made the jump to a lesser paying position for independent pharmacy and you even stated you you knew it was the right move for you despite the pay cut and you were better off could you elaborate on what made that jump better off besides the commute sure yeah so i mean i went from a you know from a short commute to a long commute so i when i left walgreens in 2013 i i mean i left just i it was a lot of different things but I think the biggest reason what made me or what prompted me to leave, and it took me a couple of years to get out, really. It, it didn't happen overnight. But it prompted me because I, I mean, just the, the honest truth is that I was, in, I was having a very difficult time. I had just had my fourth kid, oh, and wow. I had four kids in five years. So <laughs> That's a lot that of work. obviously is a lot of work. And it wasn't that I was. I couldn't do the work and still be a pharmacy manager, 
But the point was that I felt I wasn't, I didn't have a supportive management system above me. And so because of that, I, I just had a really hard kind of summer fall, came back from maternity leave. I had two family members that were very close to me pass away suddenly within a week of each other. Ooh, and sorry. and so that I had to I had no like I, I just did not feel supported in the fact that I was a, a, a new mother again, kind of going through a difficult time, struggling with the, you know, death of two family members that were very close to me and getting a phone call from my supervisor, not asked, not like giving me his condolences, but literally asking me why I didn't do seven flavor RX the week before which I was at attending two funerals that week. And I just was like, this is it. Like, you know how you just, I don't know how it is for other people when they just like make a decision that that they're just not going to do something anymore. But it was like in that moment, I was like, I'm not going to do this anymore. Like I'm not going to continue to work in an environment that is not supportive when they need to be supportive. I've given this organization 20 years and I've worked my tail off 10 as a, as a pharmacy tech slash pharmacy intern and 10 as a pharmacy manager. And I deserve a little bit more sympathy and respect considering I'm kind of going through this blip, this rough period in my life. And it wasn't that I was trying to get out of work or it wasn't. It's just I needed some sympathy and I needed some support. And because I was not getting that, I'm like, I'm leaving this place. I'm not going to continue to work someplace like this. Yeah, I think that's a huge point. Uh, I've Some of the best bosses I've ever worked for were definitely the ones who just show they cared, the simple things, like asking you how your day was, not just that day, but like, you know, what's going on outside of work and expressing a little bit of interest in you personally is just goes mm-hmm. miles and, you know, makes you want to bend over backwards for them and also helps build yep. that, that great rapport with them. It makes you want to work harder when they, mm-hmm. when say they do ask you about the seven flavor RXs, hopefully it's not after you lose someone like that, but you know, it's a, it's a good example of, you know, building right. that rapport a little and, bit. And the fact that they were aware of what was going on, but the only thing is like, I couldn't even get a pass and it's, you know, it's the first week of September and we're talking about Flavor Rx. Like, yeah. like kids aren't sick yet. <laughs> there probably wasn't even an opportunity <laughs> to yeah. do seven Flavor Rx. Like, really? Is that what I'm being berated for? Like, this is insanity. This is insane. Yeah. And, and just to be fair, I know that it does totally depend on what area you're at and who your boss is. So I'm not going to like use this as a moment to bash Walgreens or anything like that. Cause I know, no, no. I know something like that happens with CVS and it might even happen at certain independents, depending on who, who your boss or who your what? owner is. Yeah. yeah. It is so, it is for me, it is not about bashing an organization or bashing a company because I think everyone's experience as they walk through different organizations is different. So I never really, you know, and and I have to be very grateful for my time at Walgreens. Some of my best friends are, I'm still friends with, phenomenal coworkers, phenomenal colleagues. And really, for the most part, I had a really quite a great bunch of bosses. It just, I think at that time and at that moment, and I just, it was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. So it wasn't any, you know, I don't ever really want to blame any one person or one system but it just for me was was not the i knew that i could not 
continue working there. So one thing you, you kind of touched on before is, did you have any second guesses about it at all? Did you ever question the move after you made that jump into, Hey, I'm taking a job that pays less. It's for an independent. Did you ever maybe have that deer in the headlights look of being like, "Uh Oh, is this the right choice after you made the jump? I was sick. I like literally felt sick for like a week. I, I mean, I couldn't sleep. I was like, what have I done? I've just taken this job where I don't really know anybody that works at this organization. I really don't know what I'm getting myself into. I know I'm going to be having at least a minimum of about an hour or more commute a day that I go, you know, that I work. I, I was sick. I was like, what in the world have I just done? Because taking a $10 an hour pay cut is a significant amount of money. Yeah. Um, that that's a big pay cut. I just I I was worried sick about it, but I just and I think that there were I don't know if I had anyone really in my circle that was saying you're crazy, like don't do this. I don't I don't I don't recall that anybody said anything to me. I think I do remember one conversation I had with someone who said, "Well, you know what, Chara, if if all else fails, you can always go back to Walgreens." And I was like, you know what? You're right. <laughs> I'm like, you're right. I, you know, I could technically always go back. I probably could very easily go back, you know, and get a job back there if I had to, you know. And so I think that that kind of gave me a little um, security. And then to the fact that also I remember this friend saying, she's like, you're a pharmacist. You have a doctorate degree in pharmacy. You can get a job. Like, that is not. Like, you should not worry about this. Yeah, and I think that's a thing that a lot of pharmacists are feeling in the current climate where they're worried about making a jump because of how tight the market has gotten. But at the end of the day, you really did hit the hit the point there. If you're educated, this is your field. As long as you're professional and a good person, it shouldn't be a problem for you necessarily to find a job, even if it, it might be lower paying, but you'll still, you'll be fine. Just find the job that fits you and what you want to be doing. Right. I was going to say, I, I think, you know, even though at that, point, you know, when I was leaving and kind of deciding, okay, I'm just going to go do this. I, I, I was very confident in the fact that I was a good retail pharmacist. I knew my stuff. I knew I was a team player. You know, I knew I had the skills to, to really succeed, really, no matter where, what organization I was going to give those skills to. I knew that I would succeed. And so I, I just, I, I kind of started focusing on that instead of focusing so much on the money or even focusing on, is this my dream job? Because I don't even think at that moment I was thinking about the idea of having a dream job or like a job that I really, really love. I just was more focused on, I think I'm really good at what I do. And as long as I'm working with like fun people and a good team, I'll have a good time at work and it'll, it won't, you know, it'll be work, but it's like the day will go by fast and we'll have a good time while we, you know, while we are getting this work done. Yeah. And it sounds like to me, you experienced a little bit of burnout, which has been a huge thing in pharmacy these days. In fact, it was actually an article and I think it was drug topics and it was like the cover article was, are you burned out? Do you think that's part of what played into that a little bit with the Walgreens factor? Definitely. I mean, I was definitely burned out. I was making a lot of mistakes. I didn't have any tech help. I don't think I realized that I was burned out. I don't even think that I categorized it as that. I just was chalk. I, I think my I was just miserable 
in the situation, but I really wasn't thinking of that terminology. And I don't think I've really ever thought of that terminology for myself, like, oh, I'm burnt out on this. But looking back, I, I probably was. You know, when you are working, you're, you're coming in early, you're staying late, you're going to meetings on your days off, you're, doing, you're required to do flu shot clinics on your time off, you don't have adequate tech help. And, and frankly, I was making a lot of mistakes that I just would never, you know, because I'm, I'm so conscientious, mistakes that I never would normally make. But when there's not another set of eyes on the system, when you're the person that writes the prescription down, types it, fills it, and verifies it and sells it, there's a really good chance you're going to make a mistake because there's no other eyes on that. And I think that was more the factor that I was feel looking back with the burnout. I was not comfortable with the fact that I was making so many mistakes. And thank goodness, thank goodness, nothing was like a serious mistake. You yeah. know, everything was minor, thankfully, thankfully. Yeah, as a pharmacist, when you start making mistakes, you need to really be able to take a step back and look at that and say, why am I getting them? Why am I having these mistakes? Because you're the last line of defense for that patient. And when it comes to medication, one wrong thing, and there could be a serious adverse outcome there. So I'm, Absolutely. I'm glad there wasn't for your sake and your patient's sake. And, you know, I know. very and, thankful for that. And so you kind of mentioned that this was a little bit of a lateral, maybe even a downgrade move for you as far as pay goes. Is that something you think people should be more comfortable with? They shouldn't necessarily always look to go up, but they should look for more of the right situation, even if it's a lateral move per se? Yeah, I, I think I, I've, I definitely have learned that lesson also looking back. I think sometimes when you're in the middle of these things, you're not really thinking about all of this other stuff. You know, you're just not putting that in perspective. You're just kind of working out of survival you know, just because you're just like, I got to do something different. But now looking back, I think it's so important. And one of the things that I tell people that ask me about, you know, well, how did you get to do and how did you get to the point where you are now? Because where I, what I'm doing now and all of the amazing opportunities that I have right now, it's not like these things happen overnight. So I do think now, though, that when I give pharmacists or pharmacy students advice, I tell them it, it really is not about the money. It, it don't focus on the money. Even if you're thinking about making a move that is less money, but if that position, even if it's not going to be your dream job, if it's giving you an opportunity to do something different, to have a better quality of life, consider it, you know, consider it and don't, hopefully you don't have to worry so much about the money. Yeah. And I think that's a key thing. As long as you're doing your best and, you know, putting your best foot forward, doing everything you can for your patients, that's going to get recognized. And I think that's a, you know, when you said when you're making mistakes, that's obviously not good for a number of reasons. But like you said, yeah, finding the spot that's right for you is huge. And that was part of the reason I wanted you on the political pharmacist podcast was because do you think that there's a lot of people who are looking at us just as pill dispensers and not everything that we can bring to the table? And if so, do you think a lot of that is kind of dictated by the, the powers that be in the payer system for pharmacy? Yeah, I mean, the, the fact that we don't have provider status is, is, you know, is a problem. I mean, so you think about what are the services that, you know, we think of healthcare and we think of people in healthcare. Most healthcare practitioners 
are money drivers. They provide care and and providing that care pays the bills, right? So right now, because we don't have provider status, we cannot bill for our clinical services. I mean, we can. There's some ways around it and collaborative practice agreements, and there's some, you know, kind of fancier things you can, you know, do, but that's not the norm. Those are, you know, so that's not the majority of us cannot bill for our services or not set up in a way or tied in a practice where we can do that. So because of that, you know, we think, you know, and traditionally it was you, you made money by selling prescriptions, but now we know that money is drying up. Yep. There really isn't money in filling prescriptions and just because of the way that the system is set up. So we do now have to, to, to shift. And I think we are, as an organization, are really slow. I think we're, we're behind, really behind the eight ball, behind the curve. I'm making this shift because we really do need to get paid for our services, our clinical services. And then on the flip side, we do need to do, and I think there's been a lot of research done and a lot of white papers and, and journals written, but we really do have to highlight the fact that we, our services provide value. So even if we're not getting paid for a clinical service or providing a clinical service, we should highlight the fact that our services protect the system and protect the patient. And so there's a value there that's not necessarily tied to a dollar amount. And, and I think we either, we need to go in both of those directions, providing value and providing and getting paid for patient services. Yeah. And I think you hit the nail on the head there. And it, I kind of, you didn't come out and directly say it, but I think what you're getting at is we're the drug experts. We really need to make sure that everyone understands that because some, the thing that's ironic to me is the doctors write the prescriptions and most time we fill it. People don't realize how many times we have to make an intervention with that prescription, whether it be mm-hmm. there's, there's an allergy, whether it be it's not the best possible choice. After we had a discussion with the patient or they said something or we knew something about them that maybe got overlooked, because as we all know, doctors don't have a whole lot of time to spend with patients anymore because of their reimbursements being cut. And mm-hmm. there's so much talk about that, but there's not as much talk about pharmacy reimbursements until recently with some of the PBM things that have been exposed. But I think that you know us being the drug experts, we really need to make sure we take that foot forward and then kind of show everyone, hey, I can do this, but you know I'm not paid for it. Or, hey, this law actually restricts me from practicing to my knowledge base that I could actually make mm-hmm. people's lives better. Do you, do you do that a lot more in your current role? Do you really feel like your current role, you've got a better ability to use your knowledge and things like that? Yeah. So, I mean, what I'm doing right now is a little bit different than what I was doing four years ago when I started in my role. My role when I first started working for a medical group was really to run the specialty pharmacy. So my role was to fill these prescriptions. They were high dollar prescriptions. And, and I didn't really get told much more to do than that. So I was like, this is a golden opportunity. I realized, I, I, I remember maybe about two or three, maybe a month in of working at a medical group, I said, this job that I'm doing is going to change my life. And I, and I don't know why I thought that. I, I don't know why that thought popped in my head, but it did. Because I knew that working for a medical group, having access to the patient's medical records, and being able to tie that in to specialty pharmacy and really being given the, the leeway to create a program 
that I, I was like, this is amazing. I'm like, I cannot believe I've gotten this opportunity. I cannot believe this has landed in my lap. Not to mention, I mean, the best part was I didn't have to work, work nights and weekends. I was like, holy cow, that's <laughs> like the holy grail, the uniform job of retail is to get to work 8.30 to 5. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, that was like the big draw. You know, that's when I thought I hit the jackpot was with the hours. But I think then as I started working there and really being the only pharmacist at that time in the um, specialty retail pharmacy, and I had a, an amazing technician staff that really, you know, helped me out to, to kind of familiarize myself with specialty pharmacy. But I knew then that there was an opportunity here for me to really tap into this, the fact that I had access to the chart, I had access to the providers. Some of the providers were even in my building, and I really could then build patient services around this opportunity. And and I and I and that's exactly what I did. And then we started me, and I don't, it, and it wasn't just me, but I had you know two really great technicians that helped me along the way, and we we started creating. And really, some of the programs were there, but we just built on them. And we're like, I'm like, we're going to start charting every single thing, every single patient that we help and counseling session that we do, and 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 um, we were doing prior authorizations and writing appeal letters. I'm like, I'm going to chart all of that information so that the provider, all of the provider staff, the physicians, the nurses, the, the, the MAs, they know what's going on with this patient when it comes to pharmacy services. And it really, truly, I think, revolutionized our our value at the organization. I started having physicians calling me saying, oh my goodness, this is amazing. These services that you're providing, one, you're saving us money because you've taken on the fire off services. And we don't have to worry about that now. We know we can just send you a message and you're going to handle it. And you're, you're, you guys are handling financial toxicity. These medications are not cheap, but you're going after the copay cards and the foundations and the free drug. And, and we just built out this really amazing, robust program to help, really, to help patients. And, and, I, and I, I mean, I have to definitely credit my organization that they allowed me to take it and run. They're like, do your thing, you know, and, and we did. And so that program has grown, and I have since now taken on I think I'm on my third role now within the past four years with the organization. But it just was a testament really to them kind of giving us the freedom to take care of patients. Yeah, and you hit one thing on the head I really like is you said you documented every little thing you did. And I think that's mm-hmm. huge for a number of reasons because if there is something that comes up within the state for like provider status or APHA pushing at the, the federal level for provider status – that's huge because you could sit here and say, look, we're not getting paid for this. This is what we're doing for free. If reimbursements get cut more, I won't have the staff, the time, what have you, to do this. But if I get paid for my service and that falls, okay, like that's a little bit better. Granted, we should never be dispensing drugs for a loss, which is a whole other topic. But right. at least by having that documented, you can go to somebody, whether it be a state legislator or federal legislator, and go, look, this is what I do, and this is everything that I don't get paid for. This is me just being a good person, essentially, to do what's right mm-hmm. by people. And it might maybe the fees won't be you know $1,000 for an intervention, but when your fees can do things like prevent a heart attack, 
well, you might not get paid a hundred thousand dollars for that intervention, but you save the insurer a hundred thousand dollars for that cost of that heart attack. Right. And that's huge. Right. And especially when it comes to pharmacy, whether it be in your niche of specialty now or your previous niche of community, we make those hundreds of times a day, thousands of times a day across the nation. And very little of it's actually ever paid for, which is ironic. Yep. And 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 not only that, working within the realm of specialty pharmacy, these are high touch patients. And some of these patients are sick patients. These are oncology patients. These are immunology patients. They have inflammatory diseases, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's, you know, and, and these disease states, if not kept in control, really can cost the health system a lot of money. So it really is to, you know, really to our testament, the fact that we were getting patients started on meds in a couple of days, you know, specialty meds. Sometimes, and working in traditional retail, I, I definitely remember you get a Humira prescription. It would never go through. You had no tools. So you couldn't even do the prior authorization because you weren't part of the doctor's office. So you couldn't do it. You didn't know what the labs were. You didn't know if the patient, what the patient's TB status was. You don't know what they had tried and failed. You don't have the full picture. But working at a medical group, we had the full picture. And so we were able to really turn around those um, wait times to get patients started on drugs, which, you know, really, I mean, we're saving the health system probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, preventing people from being ending up in the hospital with a flare because I can get them started on their Humira in two days instead of two weeks. Well, and, you know, you know, I literally wrote down especially high touch when I was taking notes of what you're talking about. And the one thing, I guess I use this analogy, instead of death by a thousand cuts, it's life by a thousand differences. You're making those little differences every day in somebody that might not seem big, but by doing that, you're giving them a better life, a better better health, a better overall being so that they can be better and be more productive and, and do what they want to do with their life. And that's... I know. And, and that's one of those things that kills me as a pharmacist working retail. Like you said, I'll sit there and see patients who there's a prior auth on insulin or the insulin that's preferred by the insurance company is, and I'll name drop, Basiglar instead of Lantus for whatever reason. And because of the current way it is, it's a lot of the systems don't work with retail to set up collaborative practice agreements. But I know that I'm going to have to call that doctor. I'm going to have to wait a couple of days to get back to him. I'm going to fax him, do whatever, just to make a simple switch that I already know. Where something like provider status, or at least the ability to make that simple change within the state laws, boom, now the person has their insulin, they're more adherent, and I can do everything I can to take care of them with the knowledge that I have. Why am I limited yep. by that? It seems ridiculous, especially when I have a doctorate degree. And never mind the people who have BSPS, BCPS certified or any of the other mm-hmm. litany of certifications that you can have out there. Yep, that is so true. And you brought up a really triggered my memory of, a, of <laughs> another, you know, thing that we kind of revolutionized in our healthcare system. The fact that we also, one of the service lines that was already started before I came was a hep C program. And so we were working directly with the doctors on these patients who needed to get treated for their hep C and not just treated, but cured. You know, there was, there's yeah. a cure now. And, and if you think about these patients, if they don't get, there's going to be a portion of these patients that they don't get treated, they will end up with cancer. Yep. Okay. So it's, it's very important that this is a disease state we can eradicate. And, and these people like, again, it's a high touch. At that point, there was no generic. These patients, this treatment was like 
$100,000 or more for, you know, a full course of a fifth tour for Hep C. And so we just were like, <sighs> after it, we're like, we got to get these patients approved. Because sometimes it was even difficult to get them approved by the insurance company. We got to get them approved. If they didn't get approved, I would work with the medical science liaison to write appeal letters, um, to basically beg the insurance company that this is the best choice. This one day, one pill, once a day choice was, was a phenomenal choice. It's great for adherence because it's important mm-hmm. to be adherent, but it was expensive. And then you jump through all these hoops and you get it approved and their copay would be like $4,000, $3,000. Insane. It's literally know? at that and point, do you want to have food or a house or do you want your medication? Right. That's insane. And these are Medicare patients. And so we, you know, we figured it out. We're like, okay, there's foundations that help pay these copays. And I remember calling patients because patients would be like, okay, I'm going to get this medication. It's secure, right? They go home, they Google it. They see it's $100,000. That feels totally unattainable, you know, for a patient. It's unattainable for me. I'm, and I'm a pharmacist. It's even unattainable for a lot of physicians. Around, right. <laughs> And so I, you know, so we would call them and we would say, Mrs. So-and-so or Mr. So-and-so, we got your medication approved. You're going to get treated and your copay was X, Y, Z, but now it is zero. And you don't have to worry about anything but taking your pill once a day, every day. We would go through a counseling. We would explain the importance of adherence. We would document that counseling session. We would also make sure there were no drug interactions because there would be, you know, potential for drug interactions. If there were any drug interactions, we'd work with the providers on switching out something that needed to be switched out or stopping something temporarily because it was important patients get treated. And so we work seamlessly with our providers and with the foundations to get these patients approved and on drug and counseled. And even if we couldn't fill it, so even if it did have to go, go out to the PBM, we noticed there was a lack of counseling that would occur for that. And so it didn't matter for us whether we were filling it or not. Those patients got a full 20 to 30 minute, however long they needed counseling session about their drug. And we would document that. And our gastro doc just thought that was phenomenal. That, that the gastro team was so impressed with what we were doing for patients. I wonder if there's a way, and maybe this is a follow up follow up episode. If you could actually like <laughs> make a note or like look at how many different notes that just the pharmacy team made in your system. Mm-hmm. I know I can't do that with mine where I work. Of yeah, notes no, you ma- we, we, can, we probably can pull that. That would be an <laughs> interesting. Th- that. That'd be an interesting thing to see. Like in a, in a given year, the pharmacy team made however many hundred or over a thousand interventions and thousands of interventions just thousands. to, just to see where it falls and then look at it from a dollars and cents standpoint and go, you know, what's the cost benefit of that? Just to see yep. what you could do and impact you could make. And more importantly, if that impact wasn't there, that is the part that is the right. scary to me. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So one thing you you touched on, and I'm glad you mentioned this cause I, I have this on my, on my outline here. The, the PBMs, they're the, 80,000 pound gorilla in the room when it comes to pharmacy. They've been running a lot of independence out of business, especially in my state of Ohio. And either, I know CVS has bought up, it was a 20 chain, 20 store chain around the Akron Cleveland area. And they closed all but one or two of them. And just, that was it. They just crushed them right out. 
not saying that it wasn't the right thing to do for CVS. It, they are a business, by the way, so they do have to do that. But you also mentioned that PBMs have been doing stuff like this with, with uh, specialty drugs when it comes to Humira, mm-hmm. HIV meds, uh, mm-hmm. w- whatever you can think of. And part of that is because with those huge prices, they can – they can make money multiple ways off it. They can make it from the just covering the patient's life. They can make it from the spread pricing they do. They can make money off rebates. They can make money from filling the script. And do you think that that's necessarily something that they should be allowed to do is run their own specialty and drive patients there without giving them much, if any, choice? Oh, my goodness. Like, th- that, this, talking about PBM, <laughs> it is literally, like, another two-hour conversation. But <laughs> I, like, it is... It is so unethical what is going on when it comes to PBM pharmacies and how there is no patient choice. They've, um, it's not mandated. I, I really think it needs to be mandated. I know Georgia did recently mandated patient choice. There is no patient choice. They determine that that, far, that patient has to come to their pharmacy. That patient doesn't even sometimes know who's calling them. You know, yeah. to take care of these, these high-touch medications. And these medications, and we saw a lack of counseling when it came to hep C. I mean, we yep. changed our hep C program because we knew that patients getting mail order were not getting counseled properly. I mean, and I can tell you story after story. I had another patient who was on a breast cancer drug. And this breast cancer drug, you're on three weeks, one week off. The week that you're off, you have to get blood work because we have to determine your dose for the next month based on your blood work. And her dosage was changing, and they couldn't mail it out. They couldn't keep up with that. They were sending her. They sent her three bottles oh, of Jesus. the wrong dose. And this medication cost without insurance is about $15,000 without insurance. And she had three unopened bottles that she brought to me at my pharmacy that her mail order had sent her that she could not use. That was oh, close to $50,000 worth of drugs. Oh, my God. Total waste of healthcare dollars. You basi- it was simply because she was not allowed to have choice. She was not allowed to use the pharmacy, literally the pharmacy that is tied to her doctor's office. The team that provides seamless care for her was not allowed to fill her medication. And that is a travesty. That is a straight up travesty. Well, the patients have to go through that. And, and on top of that, like you said, the cost, they essentially sent her a loaded up Chevy Tahoe that she couldn't use. I you, know. $50,000, right? You know what kind of car you can get for that kind of money? A, a nice new one, a I'll tell you that. <laughs> right. Yeah, that, and I, I agree with you on that. And I think that's one of the issues I've always had with mail order was that, the, and not just that, they always send it as soon as they can so that there's more claims. And I've had patients come in with multiple, I'm talking like 24 extra bottles of HIV medication who were compliant and were totally like, you know, their their uh, viral loads were low and, and it was negative, just like it should be if you're compliant. And yet they had $48,000 of extra HIV meds that now went to waste or somebody else didn't get because they were sent that, you know, in error or additionally, I should say. With that, yeah. do, you, do you think that the uh, some of these mail order things, whether it be specialty or the uh, regular community drugs, do you think that they might be creating healthcare deserts in certain environments or creating areas where people, they're actually inhibiting people from getting their medications? Oh, absolutely. I remember when I worked for an independent, there was a push by one of the big um, PBM places that was trying to block our 
chain of pharmacies, this independent group of pharmacies out of the, their system. And, and if you think about that, and where we were, we were in the independent I worked at was in a, a uh, definitely a pharmacy desert. There was no chain within 30 minutes of where we were. And the reason that that would have been awful, can you imagine if you, ha- you can't go to the pharmacy that's in your town, you have to drive 30, 45 minutes, an hour away to go to the pharmacy? That's insanity. Yeah. So 100%, they can easily lock a group of pharmacies out and create a desert, create a pharmacy desert very, very easily. And when they feel that the, that, that business is not worth being even in those small towns, then they, they pull out. You know, they pull out and they, they create a problem. And, and I think their solution is, well, you can just get mail order. But it's like, that's not convenient for the patient. Well, you know, there's nothing really that replaces that face-to-face interaction that you can have with the pharmacy team. Yeah, and you hit it spot on when you were saying about how you're essentially looked at as a provider with, where you work as a pharmacist with the team, but you're not treated as such and you're given in almost very – your hands are tied so you can't do what you should do or what you need to do to help that patient that day when they need it. And that's that's one of the big issues I have with some of the some of the PBMs out there currently. I think there are there, I've seen an uprising of ones that are a little more altruistic that just have like they have their formularies that help keep costs down. There's a simple fee associated with them, but they're the minority of this field. So to, to caveat that with the PBMs at least. With that, since you kind of mentioned that you've made some lateral moves and then have since moved up and really kind of found your niche that you're comfortable in, what advice would you give to someone looking to start their own ind- like independent or specialty type of services like that? Is there any advice you'd give to them? So I think I, I don't know that I have much advice about starting a pharmacy. I, I know that the, that's probably a, a huge undertaking. But I think there's definitely an opportunity, especially depending on where you are. And I've seen other pharmacists that are very successfully starting collaborative practices with their providers. Or if you're working within a provider group, like we have pharmacists that work within our provider group that do have collaborative practice agreements, you know, with the providers on site. I mean, I think we, especially now that I'm in administration and and there's a lot of us now, you know, that we're in healthcare administration, we really have to be the driver and be really just just a squeaky wheel about the fact that we need to embrace pharmacists embedded in the clinic. We need to embrace their services. It is not anymore about selling prescriptions. It should not be about those. They're, they're, it's a dying business in, in some sense. And so but, so we have to get paid. And it's great. That, I mean, we do fill prescriptions at our specialty pharmacy. But, but I think our organization re- recognizes the value that we provide that's even wrapped around filling those specialty pharmacy prescriptions. There's other value that's created, you know, around that around those services and around taking care of those patients and keeping them healthy, keeping them out of the hospital. We are good at that. And so I think we have to constantly keep spreading that message. You know, we have to join our, our local chapters, our local organizations. I myself recently joined IPHA um, and, and I'm going to hopefully tackle some of these topics with the leadership of IPHA here in Illinois um, I, I'm like, listen, I am seeing firsthand some of these issues and, and we can do something about this. 
you know, we can do something, but it does take money and it does take time. So I think, you know, one of the, the biggest things, especially working with the local, you know, I think sometimes it's a little bit harder working with the national organization, but working with the local organization, that's like in your backyard, you know, yeah. that that's not far, you know, that, that's right at home and really can, can even more quickly affect you as a provider on a daily basis right there at home. You know, we can't always wait for things to move on a national level. You know, I think we're going to be waiting a long time. So I think our I think our best bet is to move on a state level. Yeah, I I would agree with you on that too. And if nothing else, it, it starts the momentum up to the federal level too. Uh, with right. that, since you mentioned multiple career shifts in your in your time as being a pharmacist or even as an intern, what advice would you give someone who's looking to make a career shift or a career change in pharmacy? The thing I tell people right now, a couple two things. One, don't hopefully don't have to worry so much about the money. And it doesn't mean that you want to just work for free. It just means you're not always going to make that, that crazy, insane, high salary when you make a change, okay? But the other thing about that is that if you make a change and you really do find something that you love, you may actually be surprised that you'll make that money back and then some. Mm-hmm. You'll, you'll be, you know, and I'm I'm very thankful, you know, that I've had the opportunity to do that, you know. But the other thing that is important is to network. And I cannot stress enough the cheapest thing to do for your career is to network. And a lot of things, a lot of networking opportunities don't cost you a dime, a dime to do. So it's important to to be involved with your alumni association. We're all (laughs) pharmacists, and a lot of times you go to school close to where you live. Not everybody, but a lot of people do. So I'm, I'm right now I'm president of the Midwestern Chicago College of Pharmacy Alumni Council. So there's networking opportunities there. And we have networking events, and, and there might only be like 50 people there. Like, you know, obviously, thousands have graduated, right? Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. Know? And, and you know that of the thousands, there's, there's a fraction of those that still live in the area. You know, so it's important to get involved. Precept students, get involved. Get, start networking. Join your local, you know, pharmacy association chapters. And a lot of them, I know here in Illinois, they even have smaller, like, suburban ones. And they host, you know, networking events. Um, I host networking events, too, you know, for pharmacist women. So just, like, you have to network. And I cannot stress the importance of, Getting out of your comfort zone, it's not comfortable for people sometimes. To go to something by themselves, to go to an event by themselves can be very uncomfortable. But you have to, if you're, if you're serious about making a change, you're going to have to invest in yourself and invest in your career. Um, I think you should also invest in your resume. It doesn't mean you necessarily have to pay someone to, help to write your resume or write your CV for you, but you really should get several different professionals from several different backgrounds, not just pharmacists, to take a look at it. You will be shocked at how much valuable advice they'll give you um, just by looking at You may think you have a stellar resume or CV, and it doesn't mean you have to ch- take everybody's advice. Yeah. But I think there's some general things that, that different people see differently. You know, and I, you know, I always try to keep my resume or CV updated, and I was showing somebody, you know, I'm not looking for a job, but I was showing somebody and they were like, this does not really quite tell me what you do on a daily basis. This is not from a businessman's perspective. This is not 
telling me anything. It's just giving me a bunch of bullet points about a bunch of different positions that you had, but it's really not telling me your impact you had on the organization. And so I was like, holy cow, like, you're right. You know, and, and me at this point, and I'm, you know, doing a lot of different things. And, and someone looked at my resume and said, it's not giving me a clear picture of what you do. Yeah. And I'm like, you know, that's, that's, and this is a non-pharmacist person, not someone not as that's a pharmacist. So I think it's important to have, when I say to network, to even extend that, not just pharmacy. You know, there's a lot of opportunities that I have gotten now. You know, I speak for a bunch of different drug companies. None of those have come from, pretty much none of those have come from networking with pharmacists. That has come from networking with different people, you know, that have given me different, you know, have given me those opportunities. Yeah, so, I, I think you I hit. Think I think you hit a really good point there. Most pharmacists tend to be a little more introverted. I, I don't know for whatever reason. I know when I was in pharmacy school, we took one of those uh, not aptitude tests, like personality tests, and almost everybody mm-hmm. came up introverted. And just breaking out of your shell a little bit, whether it be networking, even just with pharmacists, we're we're not the best profession at doing that, and that can help you open up for a career shift or a change if you were to learn of something else going on that you're like, hey, I really like that, or I'm passionate about that more than what I'm doing now. Mm-hmm. And it, mm-hmm. it, it could be doctors, it, it could be a nurse practitioner, it could be even a regular RN, it could be anybody that you can now provide value to and you might get more job satisfaction out of it, like you said. And I really like yep. that idea about having someone who's not a, not in pharmacy look at your resume. I, I know when, when I decided to make a switch a few years back, I had my wife look at mine and she ripped it apart and I got defensive about it, but I think she ended up being right. So I, I have to say, give her a little yeah, bit of credit there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you definitely can't, you know, get offended. You know, you got to really, you know, take everybody's advice. It doesn't mean you take, it doesn't mean you change everything that everybody tells you. But it really does, you know, you really do should think twice. And I think the other, two other things that are important is you need to have a LinkedIn presence. I would have never be having this conversation with you if it wasn't for LinkedIn. You really need to have a LinkedIn presence. You really do have to be a self-promoter. And I know that kind of goes against our grain. As pharmacists, we're not very good sometimes about self-promoting, but you do have to talk about what you do. I, I was talking to a student who, um, or actually a pharmacist who, you know, wanted to break out of doing what she was doing and wanted to do something else. And I said, well, what, what are some of the other things that you do? And she was telling me all these really awesome things. I'm like, why, why do I not know about these things? <laughs> I'm like, you, you need to talk about these things. You need to post about these things. You need to you know, be proactive about the thing, the really cool things that you're doing. And, and people, I mean, we get a little bit self-conscious about that, but I'm like, look, if I'm doing something cool, I'm doing getting this really neat opportunity, I'm going to talk about it. You know, let's talk about it. Let's be real. Let's, let's discuss, you know, you know, how we've done these different things. The other thing is reach out to people, connect, be like, Hey, you're doing something cool. Can we talk? Yeah. Like, I want to hear about your, I want to hear your story. Everyone loves to talk about their path and their story. <laughs> yep. So you probably will almost never get a no if you just cold turkey, you know, reach out to somebody and say, hey, you know, I am interested in what you're doing. They will probably have, at, at least give you 15, 20, 30 minutes of their time to talk about that. Oh, yeah, for sure. That's that's no, more great advice, too. Hey, with that, before we wrap up today, I, I, there's two questions I like to ask everybody who's on here, especially if they're a pharmacist. And I'm just, they're going to be very formulaic, but give me your best answer you can. If you could change one thing about pharmacy overall, what would you change? 
what would I change? Oh, one thing. I think, I think the, the, I think the thing that would really change, change our landscape was, would be to have provider status. I think that would be a game changer for the um, pharmacist, the organization of pharmacy as a whole. I, we, we need to get paid for our services, for our clinical services. They, they need to be paid. Yes. Uh, the other question, if you could change one pharmacy law, federal or state, what would you change? Um, a patient choice. Patient Hands choice? down. I, it would be patient choice that, that no organization, no insurance company can tell a patient where they have to go to get their medications filled. And, and that there's no penalty with that choice. But sometimes there's, yeah, there's patient choice, but there's like a, a huge financial penalty yeah. that goes along with it. So it's a, it's a no penalty for patient choice and the patients would have a choice. And, and then, you know, then we have competition, right? Let yep. the best man win. Yeah. <laughs> it's more the true American free capitalism, yes. Yeah, that's right. Let the best man win. So whoever's going to do the best job of taking care of that patient is going to get the business. Yeah, I, and I think that will make that. us all step up our game. Yeah, and yeah, it would be a little more survival of the fittest when it comes to some of these other uh, these games that go on. But if it takes care of the person, why not, right? Yep. All right. Well, hey, you've been a great guest, Chara. I really appreciate it. Where can people find you if they want to reach out or learn more about you? So I'm definitely on LinkedIn. Love to connect with people on LinkedIn. Find me C H A R A. Last name is Reed. Reed. Long story behind that. <laughs> But you can find me on LinkedIn and definitely message me. I love to talk to pharmacists. I love to also to network and connect with people and talk to people who are doing interesting things or want to find out, you know, about what I'm doing and how I got to, you know, do what I do. Awesome. Hey, uh, if, thank you for listening to people today. If you enjoy the show, please drop a rating on Apple Podcast or whatever platform you're listening on. Thank you for listening to Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics.